We are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we come today to verses 4 through 10. Paul has been talking to them about the fact that even though they're going through difficult times, their faith is increasing, their love for one another is increasing. And so he says in verse 4, Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. These verses give us a different way of looking at the tough times we encounter in life. Paul tells us that our suffering, and it's a broad word, whether it's the pressure of living in this world as a believer, or whether it's attacks that come on us as a direct result of our life for Christ, he says those things that you're going through are tied directly to the second coming of Christ. What he tells us is our suffering is a part of a much bigger picture. I've been praying hard that somehow the Lord will communicate to you what he's been communicating to me in this passage because it just is a totally different way of looking at everything for me. Uh, and it may be for you. So I, I pray that, that uh, you will not just listen with your brains. I pray that you will listen with your spirit and that the Holy Spirit would, would uh, make this alive to you as he has to me. Because when we go through suffering, it's easy to think that it's all about us. But Paul says in this passage, oh no, there is a much bigger plan happening. You're just a part of it. And, and I almost called this lesson a Christian perspective on suffering. But that's a pretty grandiose title, you know, for a 30 or 40 minute lesson. So I just narrowed it down to what to remember in the tough times. And the first thing is this. Don't be surprised when they come. And I, I don't know that ever I have preached a whole sermon, you know, in this depth of, of suffering. And I've been kind of staggered at the number of times in Scripture where we are warned it's going to come. And, and I put them there in your notes. 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, what's the next two words? Will be persecuted. John 16, Jesus, 
These things I've spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world, every once in a while, maybe something's going to go wrong. No, that's not what he says. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, I've overcome the world. We love the Beatitudes. Don't forget the last one. Blessed are you who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you if people know. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great because you're not the first ones. In the same way they persecuted the prophets which were before you. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. And as much as you participate, I told you it's more than about you, as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Somebody put it this way. Why should we be expected to be honored and admired by a world that hated Jesus? So Paul says, you are going through persecutions and trials. Two different words. The word persecutions comes from a word that means to pursue, be pursued in a hostile manner or to be mistreated. And interestingly enough, it has with it the idea of organized harassment. Huh. Anything gone on in the last couple of years that feels like organized harassment? against people of faith? And then the second word he uses, depending on your translation, is either trials or tribulations or afflictions. It's a word that means pressure and burdens. And it comes from a wine press where they pressed the juice out of the grapes. This is the pressure of daily living. Anybody feel like all the juice been squeezed out of you? You've had times in your life where you just feel like just the pressures of daily living have just about squeezed all the juice out of you. Now, I want to be really, really careful here. I am not advocating spiritual masochism. You know, there's a song, it's a great song, but, but it says, Lord, if the rain will bring me closer to you, send the rain. No! <laughs> Had enough rain, you know? But, but you know, I, so I'm not advocating, bring it on, bring it on. No, 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 no. You know people like that. They're always suffering. Never had a good day. Never in a good mood. You don't ever want to make the mistake of asking them how they're doing. That'll be 30 minutes of your life you will never get back. 
I heard a preacher this morning say, if you don't know somebody like that, it's you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but, and some people wear that as a badge of their spirituality. Oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. I am not endorsing that. Please remember the sermons recently of rejoice evermore and in everything give thanks, okay? However, I do think that there is a segment of the church world that has been duped into thinking that if you're living for God, everything is going to go your way. You'll never be sick. You'll never have setbacks. And you're supposed to say when somebody says, how are you? You're supposed to say, blessed and highly favored. Well, yes, we're blessed and highly favored. Sometimes we get sick. And sometimes our job gets outsourced. And sometimes our hearts are breaking. Everything's going my way is not the default position for a follower of Christ. But we think it is. And so when tough times come, we look around and wonder, what in the world's going on? You remember the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, if, if a man hits you on one cheek, turn the other cheek to him? There was a book written called, Look at That, He Hit My Other Cheek. <laughs> because you know there, there are things that happen in our lives. And we look around and say, wait a minute, God, this doesn't feel blessed and highly favored. And when sickness comes, we act like something strange is going on. When a loved one dies, we feel like, what, what happened here? This isn't supposed to happen. When, when someone we know or we lose a job in the midst of a pandemic, we look around and say, God, that's not supposed to happen. Uh, read the Bible. Suffering is not a strange thing in the life of a follower of Christ. It's going to come. Don't be surprised as though it were some strange thing that happens to you. And as I've reflected on the last few years and my observations of the Christian church, it seems like there are three ways you can respond to suffering. In some places, they just ignore it. They never address it. They pray and pray and pray and pray and pray for somebody to be healed. That person dies. They never say a word about it. They just keep moving on. They ignore it. Pretend it's not happening. I heard this and observed it myself. This is not a story I heard. I saw it happen. A preacher was preaching and he was obviously feeling miserable. He was coughing more than I do. He was sneezing. He was blowing his nose. His eyes were watering. And he said he was one of these preachers where you never get sick. He said, I do not have a cold. I have the symptoms of a cold. Now you got the symptoms of something. But, but you know, I mean, people just try to ignore it. There are other people who very subtly blame the person who is suffering for their suffering. And I'm going to have a hard time right here because this makes my blood boil. 
because as a healthcare chaplain, we have to go in the room and deal with the aftermath of people who think it's their fault that their loved one died because they didn't have enough faith or their confession wasn't positive enough or they didn't pray enough because that's what they've been taught from their pulpit. If you just pray, if you just have enough faith, if your confession is positive, the doctor says you've only got six months to live, you better not repeat that. You better not say that because the Bible says by his stripes we're healed. And if one day I said to somebody, you know, the doctor said they don't have much time and then that loved one dies, it's my fault because I allowed that negative stuff to come in. Folks, that is spiritual abuse. That is spiritual malpractice. Don't let anybody ever tell you you didn't pray enough or fast enough or be positive enough. Wrong. Don't blame the person who's suffering because they're suffering. So what, I, what we ought to do, oh, and by the way, about that, again, I heard this with my own ears. I saw it with my eyes. A preacher was a, everything's going to be great if you just do what you're supposed to. You're never going to have any problems, never going to have any sickness. And he said, and you know, people are always coming up to me and saying, well, what about Job? And this is what he said. If Job had known the principles I'm teaching you today, he would not have gone through that. I felt like ducking under something because surely lightning's going to strike. Had he not read the book? How should we get, respond to suffering? Prepare for it. Prepare for it. We know it's going to come. Prepare for it. God poses a challenging question to the children of Israel. Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 5. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? What he's saying is, if you can't keep your faith when everything's going smooth, how in the world are you going to handle it when the tough times come? We need to be prepared. We need to know and practice the fundamentals of living by faith so that when the pressure's on, we will have an almost automatic response to do the right thing. Yesterday was a great day. College football was back. And I got to watch a few minutes of a couple of the games. There weren't that great of games, but it was live football. And, and, and it reminded me, when Brian was coaching football, he told me that their goal as coaches was to so repetitively drill and train and prepare the players in the fundamentals so thoroughly that they didn't have to think during a game. He said, we don't want our kids to think during a game. Bad things happen when they start thinking. He says, we want them so trained and prepared that they do the right thing automatically, that muscle memory. 
few years ago, uh, he, he won through his phone company a, a couple of tickets to a Baltimore Ravens game, and he took me up to as my first NFL game. And we got there plenty early, looked around the stadium, and did all that stuff. And, and then we got to our seats, and then, then the teams came out for their pregame warm-up drills. And I was stunned. Because the things those players were doing, offensive line, defensive line, receivers, the warm-up drills they were doing were exactly the same as I watched Brian do when he was in middle school and high school playing football. And I said to him, those are the drills you did. And he said something along the lines of, yeah, because the fundamentals never change. <laughs> At every level of football, the fundamentals are the same. And they are drilled into 12-year-olds in middle school. They are drilled into high school players. They are drilled into college players. And they are drilled into grown men making multi-million dollars a year. They're still doing those little weird steps and doing the shuffles and doing all the stuff because the fundamentals don't change. What's happening? They're getting them prepared for the game. Some of you who are old-time followers of the NFL, remember the Baltimore Colts and remember Johnny Unitas. You may or may not know Raymond Berry. Raymond Berry was his wide receiver. I saw a video one time of those two guys after practice. Raymond Berry always wanted to catch between 100 and 200 balls a day after practice. After everybody else is off the field, the quarterback and the wide receiver are still on the field. I learned from Brian, they call those drills on air. There's nobody there, just those two guys. And Unitas would slap the ball, there's the snap, and I watched Raymond Berry, the wide receiver. Now, I would have thought, well, just run to where he's going to throw you the ball and let him throw you the ball. Oh, no. Every fake, every hip shuffle, every shoulder shrug, he's moving his arms, he's moving his head. I thought, this is the stupidest, silliest thing I've ever seen. And then he gets to the point where the ball's supposed to be, and the ball's there. And then the guy that did the video showed them running that same play in a game. You could have superimposed Raymond Berry from practice, onto Raymond Berry on the field in a game, you could not have known there were two people. Exactly. Every fake, every shoulder shrug, every hip swivel, every head move, every arm move, exactly the same. No wonder they're both in the Hall of Fame. Because what he did in a game was what he had done hundreds, probably thousands of times in his career when there was nobody else on the field but his quarterback. What you saying, preacher? I'm saying you prepare for game time on the practice field. You prepare for the hard times 
by being faithful to the spiritual disciplines in the practice times. Now, I know in the Christian life there's no such thing as practice times, but you look back over your life, there have been times when it's not been as hard. You know, you've had times where you've had a week or so and you thought, huh, it's been a pretty good week. You know, maybe the devil's not paying attention to me this week. You know, and, and if we're not careful, what happens in those, quote, easy times is we slack off in our spiritual disciplines. And then when the hard times come, it knocks us for a loop. You are faithful in the easy times, in the practice times, to do what you know you're supposed to do. I'm talking about spending time with God in prayer, getting into the Word, worshiping with your brothers and sisters, praising God, doing the things you know to do to keep your life of faith awake and alert and strong. You do them when you don't feel like you need them because when you need them, they need to be there. If you don't pray and read the Bible and you know attend worship when things are going smoothly, what makes you think you're going to do that when the bottom falls out? If you didn't understand that God loved you and had a plan for you in 2019, how in the world did you handle the pandemic thinking that God had a plan for your life? I want to paraphrase something I heard Kay Warren say. She said, plant the roots of your faith so deeply in the character of God so that when your life is shaken, the roots will hold. That's what I'm talking about. <sighs> Here's a contemporary paraphrase of if you can't run with people on foot, how are you going to keep up with the horses? If you lost the joy of the Lord and the peace of God during the shortages of the pandemic, when the store didn't have your favorite brand of toilet paper, how in the world do you think you're going to handle it when real tragedy strikes? Prepare. Don't be surprised when persecution comes. Get your roots down deep in the character of God. Keep on praying. Keep in the Word. Keep worshiping. Keep meeting with believers in corporate worship. Keep doing the things you know you're supposed to do in order to keep your connection with God. Do it in the easy times so that when the pressure's on, to use the football analogy, when it's fourth and goal and this next play either wins or loses the game, that you automatically do the right thing because of practice and practice and practice. Second thing to remember in the tough times. God sees you in your suffering. Paul says, we're boasting about your perseverance, your faith, and the things you're enduring. Three words, perseverance. It means to stand firm. It is not kesarasara. It is not some kind of a passive, oh well, today's the rainy day. It is the strength to stand firm. It is the strength to flourish during the tough times. The word faith means what you think it means. It means trusting God even when times are hard. God, I don't understand it. 
God, I don't like it, but I trust you. And the word endurance, the things you are enduring, speaks of responding in a godly way. That's why we mentioned verse 3 earlier. He says your faith is growing, your love is growing. While you're going through this persecution, you are becoming better, not bitter. And God sees us in our suffering. And the only way that we can persevere and maintain our faith and endure is if we are mature enough in our faith to see that God is working in my life even when I don't understand it. I'm going to mention probably several times the rest of the morning, Romans 8, 28 and 29. We know God is working in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, verse 29, so that we will be like Christ. I told you a few weeks ago, if what you're going through isn't good, then God isn't done. Because when he's done, all things will work for good. This is not a cliche. It is a statement of fact and truth about God's character and his nature and his sovereignty. He is working through every single thing in your life, if you're a follower of his, to make you more like Christ. The challenge that we have is that his perspective is different than ours. He says all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. See, we think, if we're not careful, that when we're going through hard times, God must not be there. But Paul says, oh no. Actually, your suffering, the hard times you're going through, is evidence that God's judgment is right. He's saying your perseverance, your faith, your endurance is evidence of the righteousness of God. And he said, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now be clear, he's not saying that suffering is how you earn the kingdom of God. He's not saying that suffering is how you become worthy. It's a legal word. It means to be seen as worthy, to be adjudicated as worthy. And it's not your suffering that makes you be counted worthy. It's your reaction to the suffering that makes you counted worthy. I was talking to somebody this week who'd just gone through a, a big disappointment, and I said, now the test is this. How are you going to respond? Because part of God's process in our lives is how do we respond when the reverses come? And this is what he's saying. Because of your response, your perseverance, your faith, your love, your endurance, because of that, God is saying, I was right. You are worthy of the kingdom. I am counting you worthy of the kingdom. Suffering is significant. Please know that. The persecutions, the hardships, the difficulties of life are significant. It demonstrates your faith. It demonstrates that you're worthy of the kingdom. It has a moral purpose. 
to make us more like Christ. And it is connected somehow to the sufferings of Christ himself. Romans chapter 8, verse 17, if we share in his sufferings, we will share in his glory. I don't understand that, but it's what the Bible says. Suffering is significant. Third thing to remember, justice is coming. In verses 6 through 9, he reminds us, God is just. And justice is coming first to the persecutors, to those who are putting the pressure on you, to those who are persecuting you. Justice is coming. See, there are some people who think that if God is love, he can't be just. No. God's justice and his love are not mutually coexistent. I mean, mutually exclusive. In fact, the verse 5 in the King James Version says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to those who trouble you. And the word there he talks about recompense and the word that's used, vengeance, does not mean revenge. It means justice. When Christ returns, justice is coming. And he will reverse the fortunes of both the persecuted and the persecutors. If he did not do that, he would not be a God of justice. And somebody said a world in which justice is not done at last would not be God's world at all. And so I want to give a word of encouragement to those who wonder if justice is ever going to be carried out. Because you look around our world and you don't have any confidence that justice is going to win out, right? I mean, there are people that everybody in the world knows are guilty and they get off because they knew the right judge or they had the right attorney or they had the right amount of money. And we wonder, God, is there ever any justice in the world? Well, maybe not now, but justice is coming. Haven't you wondered at some point in your life, God, where's the justice in all this? I have a friend who's a great godly person and they lost their job in the pandemic and all these heathen people are making money hand over fist God's where where's the justice in that and surely some point of the last couple of years you said God where's the justice in our world and I just want to encourage you justice is coming now justice is not my job it's not your job what did God say? Vengeance, justice is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are never to take matters into our own hands in this area. We are to forgive and keep forgiving. We are to love those enemies and those who persecute you. We're not to seek personal vengeance. By the way, God's more interested in justice than you are. And God is fully capable of completely providing justice, and you and I are not. Remember Luke 7, 18, verse 7? Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Verse 
the suffering that we go through, especially the persecution that you go through because of your faith, is actually evidence that judgment is going to come. Because if you're not suffering, you don't need justice. If you're not suffering in unjustly, you know, you don't need justice. So the very fact that you're going through those tough times is evidence that there's coming a day of justice and judgment. Are you awake enough in this world to realize that um, unbelievers are no longer just neutrally passive toward Christians? Do you remember a few years ago, the people who wanted to change, you know, a lot of the moral standards and things, said, you Christians can keep believing what you want to believe. You can keep hiring who you want to hire. We're not interested in telling you what to do. We just want you to leave us alone. Boy, that ship done long sailed, hadn't it? They used to talk about pluralism. We are a pluralistic society, which means you can believe whatever you want to. Not anymore, not if you're a Bible-believing Christian. There's no such thing as pluralism when it comes to taking a stand for Scripture. And I just need to remind you, lest you throw up your hands and quit, justice is coming. When? Not till when the Lord comes back. He says in verse 7, when he's revealed from heaven in blazing fire, that relates to his deity and his appearance that, that the John talks about in Revelation. Who's going to be punished? He says, verse 8, those who don't know God. That's a reference back to Romans chapter 1 of those who refuse to see the evidence around them of the God of creation. They are ignorant of God, but they're without excuse. And then those who don't obey. These are those who willfully reject the truth that they know. And what form is this punishment going to take? Verse 9, they will be punished first with everlasting destruction. Fascinating word, it means ruin. doesn't mean annihilation, it means ruin. It's the idea of the loss of everything that makes life worth living. Hopeless, empty, no future, no opportunity for change, no hope, everlasting ruin. And the second thing is eternal separation from God, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Can you imagine living a life shut out from the presence of God? No comfort of His Spirit, no beauty, no joy, no peace, nothing of His presence that makes life worth living, and nothing of His glory, nothing of His splendor, nothing of His power. What Paul says is, Justice is coming, and the form it's going to take is eternal separation, basically from anything good and anything that makes life worth living. 
But I also need you to know that justice is also coming to those who are being persecuted. Because justice just means that the right thing's going to be done. And he says in verse 7, he will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Oh, you need some relief? It's coming. I know we don't want to wait until Christ gets back for it, but that's when it's going to come. The word relief is an interesting word. You know about bows and arrows, and that string on the bow has to be tight for it to send the arrow where it needs to go. However, if you never loosen that string, it loses its elasticity and it can't do its job. And so people who hunt with bows and arrows release the tension on that string. And this word relief is talking about that. The reliefs of tension. And it really bounces back from the word that we looked at in the early part, trials, tribulation, affliction, that word that means pressure. This word relief ties back to that and says there's coming a day when there will be relief from tension and pressure and suffering. Now Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that we are strangers in this world. There's always going to be tension until Christ comes back. Just part of being a Christian in a non-Christian world. But when he returns, he's going to bring relief, rest, restoration. Relief from affliction, relief from tests and trials. <laughs> Imagine a life without problems, without the effects of sin without tension, without strife, the tightness of life, the pressures of life, the squeeze of life will be relaxed in eternal joy. So just remembering, the suffering you're going through isn't going to last forever. Paul says, the suffering of this world, this temporary suffering, is not worthy to be compared with the glory it's working for. Relief is coming. Fourth thing to remember when times are tough. God will ultimately be glorified. Verse 10, the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. Now he is glorified as he works and glorifies himself in his church. He's glorified as we give glory to him. You see in the book of Revelation where the saints are worshiping and giving glory to Christ. He will be glorified when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But catch the preposition. He will be glorified in his holy people. We ourselves will be transformed into his likeness and his glory will be seen in us now we want to glorify God 
in our lives, and we do bring glory to God in our lives. But let's be real, sometimes the glory is not an accurate reflection of God, right? And sometimes there's fingerprints on it and smudges on it, and sometimes it's a little distorted because we are not yet able to perfectly reflect his glory. But on that day, when Christ returns, something will happen inside of us. Somebody likened it to the filament of a light bulb just exploding into light. And he will be glorified in us. We will be perfectly like Christ on that day. To paraphrase Alexander McLaren, he said it would be like if you were to ask Christ, what is the greatest example of your glory? He will not say the great white throne in heaven. He will not say the worship of the angels. He will point to his children and say they are the greatest example of my glory. His highest glory comes from the people who share his nature. And on that day, he will perfectly be glorified in us. No wonder John could say, Beloved, now we are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when Christ shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I pray that somehow that resonates with you. That on that day, when Christ comes back, we will perfectly reflect his glory. Something will happen inside of us and we will be transformed into our glorified bodies and his glory will be seen in little old me and little old you. Oh, but what really got me excited is the next phrase. He will be marveled at among all those who have believed. There will come a moment of recognition in our lives. What do you know? He was right. What do you know? God really did work all things for my good. He is now glorified perfectly in me. And all that suffering and all that persecution and all that pressure has now resulted in His glory in me. And we'll look at one another and we'll say, what do you know? He was right. You look like Christ. You look like Christ. His glory is all over you. And we will marvel at His wisdom and His goodness and His sovereignty and His plan for our lives. And I have this mental image of just 
slide after slide after slide after slide after picture after picture after picture of all of the things in our life that we thought were bad, that we thought was the end of us, that we thought was tragedy, and they are going to be replaced by slide after slide and picture after picture of the glory of God that was accomplished as we stayed true to him during those times. I've told you before, one of the struggles we have in this life is that our life is like a book and we haven't gotten to the last chapter yet. So of course it doesn't make sense yet. But on that day, when Christ returns, the last exclamation point, and I don't know about you, but I think our life's going to end with an exclamation point. The exclamation point of the last sentence in the last paragraph in the last chapter of the story of our life will be written. And we will marvel at the author and finisher of our faith. Hang in there. It's going to be good. And while you're hanging in there, plant your roots deep. When you get those blessed days of relief, you keep your spiritual discipline strong because you need the roots of your faith planted deeply in the character of God so that when the hard times come, those roots will hold you firm. And one day, Christ will be glorified in you perfectly and you will just marvel at the great God you serve. Father, please, somehow, make this truth live in each of our lives. And may it change the way we live, because we will see the end of the story. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine on you and give you his peace, now and evermore. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being here today. God bless you. Go in peace.